Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Most of the news we hear about the Middle East revolves around violence. This obscures what life is like for people. Rana Swayce is a Jordanian journalist and writer, and she's a fr- frequent contributor to the New York Times from Jordan. Her new book is Voices of Jordan, stories about people in Jordan. It's great to meet you. And I, you were telling me you were a former NPR intern, so you're, you're really just coming back home. I, I was, yes. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I, I think um, the idea for your book came originally from the Arab Spring. Uh, what happened? How did you come to want to talk about what people really think in Jordan after the Arab Spring? So I started covering the Arab Spring beginning 2011, and it was just one event after the other, every Friday protest. So it, there was no stopping. It was just continuous for four, five, six years. And then there was sort of a lull. And um, when there was this lull, I started reflecting. And the initial idea of the book, for the book came from the idea that I wanted to take people living in the U.S. and Canada uh, and Europe uh, into the lives, living rooms, and minds of the people that I was seeing and talking to. And I said, if if I just can find a way to do that and not to do it in a dry scholarly manner, but in a way that I can imagine someone on the subway reading about it uh, and uh, caring about uh, the things that I was seeing and hearing as well. And there aren't a lot of books like that for Jordan. I, I think if people went and looked up for a book on Jordan, they'd see a book about the king or the queen or, the, or some past king or queen or some history. Or uh, it's, it's not about people. Absolutely. And not about modern life in Jordan today. And on top of that, the challenge was getting publishers interested in Jordan itself because um, it's not at war. It's not as dramatic as our neighbors, of course. So, uh, you know, I really had to convince them that the challenges were the same once the civil conflicts were over, whether they're economic or youth challenges or unemployment or women. So the challenges are, are the same. So some of the people you profile in the book, political cartoonist, fashion diva, jihadist, a female parliamentarian, a Syrian refugee. Um, tell me about one of them. Uh, this, well, I'll, I'll talk about a bit about the Syrian refugee when I, I wanted to uh, write uh, about a Syrian refugee because they really becomes part of the social fabric of Jordan the past seven, eight years. Um, and the point of writing about these characters is each one uh, for me represents a segment of Jordanian society. So you put them together and you kind of have a picture of the nation. Um, And the Syrian refugee, when I went to interview her, I was thinking that I was going to write about her life as a refugee. Uh, But her story is really about a civilian caught up in the war in Syria. She was in Homs when uh, the middle of the bombing was taking place. Um, And what was life like for civilians? Because we're not getting also that picture. So most of the chapter is about her life actually in Syria and she was displaced eight times inside Syria before she arrived in Jordan and then we talk about her life uh, in Jordan as a refugee. It is such an amazing thing that Jordan has, uh, I think it was 1.4 million is the ballpark number of Syrian refugees in the country and Jordan's not that big a country and this is an amazing thing. 
It is. Um, and uh, we've had a history of uh, welcoming people into our country, whether we're talking about uh, Palestinians from the 1948-1967 war, uh, the Iraqis from the 1990s and 2003 war, and today uh, the Syrian refugees. Of course, arguably, I would say they have contributed greatly to our country. Um, others will tell you it's a, it's a burden. So it's an ongoing um, debate within Jordan, but uh, especially with Iraqis that came from Baghdad in 2003, a lot of them were artists and intellectuals and have greatly contributed to our culture and art scene in Jordan. One of the points your book is making is, is really the resource in Jordan is its people and the strength is its diversity. It's, it, that, is, that is what you've got. It is, and we really have to hold on and preserve this uh, diversity and tolerance in the region. Uh, when a colleague of mine from the New York Times, her name is Rukmini Kalamaki, as you know, she covers ISIS. When she went to Mosul and Baghdad, she found troves of documents there, and she tried to analyze them and see how they ruled and governed and controlled swaths of land there. Um, and one thing, the first thing that struck me is that the first thing they did was try to destroy this diversity um, by, by saying that anyone who is not Sunni um, was expelled from their homes, uh, you know, uh, basically excluded from uh, their country and their nation. So tolerance is, you know, we say truth is the first casualty of war, but so is diversity. How is uh, Jordan coping with these Syrian refugees? I know a, lot, a significant number of them are in camps, but others aren't. And I, it seems to be affecting the economy, the, 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 whole, the whole spray of things. So actually, most of them are not in camps. They're in host communities. Um, so we have about uh, 80,000, 70 to 80,000 in a refugee camp in the north of Jordan. Um, but the vast majority, as about, you know, f that leaves around 550,000 or more, are actually in urban areas and living with Jordanians. Uh, I think the areas that are most affected are in the north near the border, where there is pressure on the infrastructure, on the uh, education, on water resources. Um, that's where the pressure is. Um, in In terms of the, the south, for example, it's less so because it's far from Syria. But we've uh, been impacted in, in terms of resources, I would say. Is, um, is it creating this financial stress that drives up prices in Jordan, which is, was the thing that led to there were some big protests this spring that were really um, powerful and they were about government policies and things, but um, it, it seems like they're all connected. It is and it's not. Um, I think we have our own internal uh, lack of economic development and lack of political reform that we need to look within uh, and not blame others, uh, whether it's, it's refugees or others. I mean, uh, we need to encourage entrepreneurs. We are not. Uh, we need political reform uh, and a serious new draft law for elections and democratization and giving people public spaces for public debates. So we have a lot of work to do internally. So I can't blame the economic uh, problems only on Syrian refugees. 
I'm talking with Rana Swayze. She's a Jordanian writer and journalist. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times. Her new book is Voices of Jordan, stories about people in Jordan. Uh, tell, me, uh, tell me about someone else. Okay, so uh, the, another character is a female parliamentarian. Um, I really wanted to interview her for two reasons, because she's the youngest uh, female parliamentarian that ever won in Jordan. And she ran uh, the first time on a quota system. Um, and the second time she won uh, competing with men. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to follow her on the campaign trail. I wanted to go to her home. I wanted to see how she's able to deal in, in a, with constituents who are very conservative and how she's able to help her community and stand up for uh, women uh, and their issues as well. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating story. And also, I wanted to uh, talk about the larger themes, whether it's women in politics, women uh, and the law in Jordan, and also about Jerash, her town. Uh, Jerash is a very famous historical uh, Roman uh, town uh, that is similar to Palmyra in Syria. So I did want to talk about, about it as well. So I did in that chapter. Um, tell us a little about the town. What, what's it like? Uh, the town, uh, the town. So the, I would say it's divided into two. Uh, so there's the large Roman ruins, and so much is still has not has not been earthed, unearthed, um, and. Uh, it, every summer we have a festival where actors from around the world and musicians come and there's a, they come to the Roman amphitheaters and uh, you can take tours there. It's, it's a really lovely, lovely town. Um, the downtown area is more like shabby. It's, uh, it's maybe what you see more in a typical Middle Eastern uh, downtown area. Uh, crowded. Um, you have fruit boxes on the pavements and the sidewalks. Um, people going about their day. A very, very different kind of picture than from the tourist site. Um, we're talking with uh, Rana Swayze from uh, her book is Voices of Jordan. And she is going to be tonight at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs at 4 p.m. this afternoon. And she'll be doing a presentation there. Um, I wanted to ask you some questions about... Um, Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is so in the news these days from the Khashoggi affair. And Jordan has a close relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, the Saudis are deeply involved in, in, in the Middle East peace plan that uh, the United States and Israel are cooking up. All this is going to have an effect on Jordan. Everything that's happening with Saudi Arabia, there's something that's going to come back to Jordan. Yeah, so the the plates are shifting in the region uh, in terms of allies. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, uh, what is the deal of the century? I think, you know, no one knows, um, but it, I don't think anyone in the Middle East thinks that it's looking good. Um, and of course, uh, the relationship between Jared Kushner and MBS um, Hamad bin Salman, the crown prince, is quite close. Uh, leaving Jordan uh, kind of its traditional role of being the negotiator um, uh, kind of on the sides. And uh, uh, this is a very big shift than what what it previously used to do. But the impact of any final settlement is, as you mentioned, so big on, on Jordan. And in terms of our relationship with Saudi, or at least the government's relationship with Saudi, is base, based on economic interests. 
mainly. And uh, as you know, Jordan does not have uh, many resources and is very dependent on foreign aid, the second or the third largest U.S. aid recipient in the world as well. So this uh, puts Jordan, I think, in a situation where it doesn't have enough leverage sometimes. So the irony of it, of course, is between the Palestinians and the Saudis, I think the most uh, country that will be impacted by any final uh, Palestinian-Israeli deal will be Jordan in terms of its location, in terms of what happens to the West Bank, in terms of what happens to right of return. Uh, this is a very big issue for Jordan. I was reading about how many Jordanians work in Saudi Arabia. Lots. And they, it's a remittance thing, too. It is. And uh, this is what I worry about as well in Jordan. And I talk about this a bit in the book, which is, uh, you know, we have a very high unemployment rate among the youth, over 30 percent. And the poverty rate is also rising. And uh, what this will do is if we don't have uh, political reform, if we don't bring youth into uh, a decision-making uh, position in Jordan, then I'm afraid that more and more people will want to leave. And this is not only going to be a problem uh, for Jordan in terms of brain drain, but it's going to be a problem for the U.S., for Canada, for uh, Europe, because we're going to see more people leaving the Middle East and not not as refugees, but as economic migrants. Uh, what kind of political reform do you want to see in Jordan? Because Jordan, you know, very consistently uh, dismisses the prime minister, gets uh, calls new elections, they have new cabinets, and every time there's a problem, everybody goes, and then um, some people come in. The IRI, the International Republican Institute, uh, did a poll in Jordan. 50% of the people they polled, the Jordanians, feel like they are excluded from the system. They feel like their voice is unheard. Uh, they feel they're not part of the political process, the social, even I would say social and economic process. You cannot marginalize uh, this population. You cannot exclude them. They have to be part of the process. And to do that, they need to feel like they have a voice. The best way to do that is to have a good uh draft law for elections, which we don't right now, they need to feel like they're part of the decision making process, whether it's, you know, and I think the first step we need to do, which is what uh, Jamal Khashoggi talked about in his last op-ed in the Washington Post, was we need more debate in the Middle East. We need to debate issues in public space and collectively make decisions, not m have decisions made on behalf of us. It's going to be uh, hard for Jordan economically. All these economic decisions uh, were so instrumental in putting people in the streets in the spring. But they, they, when they've got the IMF or somebody telling them what to do or the Saudis or somebody else telling them, you've got to reform your uh, economy this way, they, they've, got to, they've got to do that rather than listen to the people. They're doing – they're between a rock and a hard place. I understand. And it's true. It's it's complex. But you have to bring people into the debate. Um, even if it's a tough decision, they cannot be even excluded, even from the debate itself, from these decisions 
even if they're hard decisions, they need to feel like they're part of uh, the decision-making process. Before we let, I let you go, um, tell us about another person who was in the book. Uh, maybe the jihadi. Um, uh, the jihadi is, uh, I met at the state security court. His son was detained for promoting the ideology of ISIS on uh, WhatsApp, Facebook, um, and he was imprisoned for two years. And I was uh, watching the trial and someone told me his father is behind you. So I started talking to him and asked him if I can visit them at their home. Um, and he reluctantly accepted and uh it's so interesting to go into, again, the minds and sort of the discussions and how they think and why. Because even in Jordan itself, we hear about uh, about uh, Salafis or jihadis, but we really, we, we, we fear even uh, having a discussion with them. So uh, I really wanted to understand their way of thinking. What did you get out of that? I mean, do you feel like that person is um, someone who would benefit from more open space for public debate. Is, 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 are there things running? It always seems like uh, the jihadi mindset has you know, these cycles of thought going on and they're, they're, they go unchallenged. Yeah, they need to be challenged, exactly. And the only way they can be challenged is if people are able to talk to them. I mean, there are a certain number of people you can't change. They just think black and white. You can't do anything. But for them, I think what we need to do is we need to find, for example, the 18, 19, 20-year-old. Because these people, you know, they still, there's a future. If you, if they leave the prisons uh, and you close every door uh, and you send them back to their environment, what does the future hold for them, for their community, and for uh, the country itself? Um, you're just, uh, again, uh, putting them back in that cycle. So we need to find a way uh, for those that there is a hope for them to change, to provide the opportunities to do so. I'm not saying they should have a voice. I'm not saying I'm completely against, you know, the ideology, of course. Um, but in terms of practical ways to change this mindset, I think if there is a chance, we should work on it. Rana Swice is a Jordanian journalist and frequent contributor to the New York Times. Her new book is Voices of Jordan, Stories About People in Jordan. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the book. And tonight, or this afternoon, people can see you at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs at Randolph Street at 4 p.m. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Rana Swice. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik. He'll talk with filmmaker Jason Reitman about his new movie, The Front Runner. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Gary Hart was the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination in 1988. Then in one week, his monkey business scandal with Donna Rice ended his political career. 
The front runner is the new Jason Reitman film that stars Hugh Jackman as Gary Hart. It opens today. Film contributor Milos Stalik has this conversation with director Jason Reitman. So, Jason, your new film, which is quite a departure from your last film, your last film was Tully, and this new one is called The Front Runner. It's a political subject. How did you come to this? <laughs> <laughs> this started for me three years ago, uh, actually, with a Radiolab piece. I was listening to Radiolab, and they did a piece on the Gary Hart scandal. This was really my introduction to that story. I couldn't believe at the time that in our recent history, there was a moment in which the presumed next president of the United States wound up in a alleyway in the middle of the night with a bunch of journalists and no one knew what to do. And that less than a week later, he left politics forever. And the more I shared the story with people, the more I realized that everyone had a different perspective on what this story meant. And it's a story that fell uh, between two lines, people who had no idea who Gary Hart was and people who had misremembered the story for what it was. But the story evolved rather quickly because Gary Hart, this was in 1987, mm -hmm. and he was, quote-unquote, the great American president who never was. So he was on a really good trajectory yeah. to get the nomination. And then all of this scandal with Donna Rice came about and happened very quickly. So it was a very critical moment. It was. And look, this was the first time that political journalism and tabloid journalism really drove into the same lane. And, you know, it put papers like The Times and The Post in the position of having to decide, do they even have the option to not cover this? If the rest of the country is, in fact, talking about this subject, you know, does The Post have to cover this? It's something that Ben Bradley actually spoke to in the couple years after the events when he was speaking to David Frost. He said that, you know, uh, how do I not cover this? So you got immersed in this whole Gary Hart story and you began researching it or? <laughs> yeah. And, and look, uh, uh, I can't pretend to be a student of history. I'm a student of movies. Uh, but I co-wrote this movie with Matt Bai, who's a New York Times magazine writer who covered five presidencies, and Jay Carson, who had been the press secretary for Hillary Clinton in 08 and for Howard Dean and a few different senators who uh, remain in Congress to this day. So it was a film that was kind of written on the backs of the experience of two people who really lived this life. And our goal was to make a movie that really dropped you onto the campaign trail and made you feel like you were in the midst of the hurricane. But it really is a gets away from the whole issue of did he sleep with Donna Rice? Did he have an affair? Or didn't he? It's really not about that. No. It's more about the political system and all of these things around it. And that's what's so fascinating about it, all these layers that surround the candidate. Yeah. I mean, whether or not he slept with Donna Rice is really kind of besides the point. I mean, look, truth be told, we don't know. There's only two people who know the answer to that question, and neither have ever spoken about it. Uh, Gary Hart has certainly ever talked about it, and Donna Rice has been offered a fair amount of money to tell her story, and she never has. They're two private people when it comes to this. So the question is, why do we care so much? Should we care so much? And when we talk about their sex lives, what are we not talking about? You know, here was a guy who, he's kind of the perfect pH test, you know. He had big ideas. He was charismatic. He was to be the next president. He proved to be prescient on so many things, Middle East to Russia, education to the way that computing was going to change the economy. And for a brief moment, all we cared about was this one moment. He's kind of now been encapsulated as a joke, you know, the name of a boat. And we don't stop to think about, oh, what changed in this moment? Because what's interesting about him is, is that he was somebody who had a command of the issues. Yes. And here he was pushed into just being fodder for the... 
Yeah, you couldn't have taken a candidate who wanted to talk more about real ideas and who was prepared to talk about anything. And he was a guy who could, you really could sit him down with six different journalists simultaneously, and they could each hammer him on different ideas. And he was adept and ready to talk about them and proved to be kind of prescient about his vision of the future. And the last thing he wanted to talk about was his personal life. Now, you know, of course, what happened at the time was this was, in fact, the moment that the American public did become seriously interested in the personal lives of candidates in the same way that they had historically been interested in the personal lives of, let's say, like people in Hollywood. So anyway, this was the first step towards Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, etc. I mean, all of these things were really anticipated in that first Gary Hart moment. That's why I fell in love with the story. You know, I'm like anyone alive today. I look around at the world and I go, how the hell did we get here? Right? I think we're all thinking that. No matter kind of where your partisanship stands, you can't help look at the system and feel like it's somewhat broken, that we spend too much time talking about the wrong things. And if we look back and try to find the seeds from which this grew, uh, the Gary Hart story is like this thread that you start pulling on and it brings up questions of gender politics. The relationship between candidates and journalists, you know, where does a public life start and where does a private life end? Well, one of the things that's interesting about the film is the character of Donna Rice, mm -hmm. whom you make out to be much more complex than we were led to really believe or that was left for us. I mean, in a way, she was kind of written off. I mean, there's the kind of uh, shaming of women who are right. caught in relationships like this, and that's kind of how she was written off by most of the public, right? And she, absolutely but she's right. much more intelligent, a woman who was actually trying to do something for her life. She was a smart, ambitious young woman whose life was just ripped out of her hands. And people would ask me, you know, what movie are you going to make next? And I'd say, oh, I'm doing the Gary Hart story. And the reaction was always the same. They would go, oh, <laughs> monkey business. And what was her name? What was that blonde's name? And I could hear, even in the tone of their voice as they brought her up, they thought of Donna Rice as an object, not a human being. Uh, and that, by the way, continues to happen to this day. So our approach to her character specifically was to confront the audience with a real human being, that when we treat these stories as jokes and we treat these humans as objects, we forget about the human beings at the core of them. Uh, and here's a young woman who... Uh, uh, had to kind of figure her way out of this before there was a playbook, before there was a lawyer you could call and a PR person you would hire. And the woman that I met... And that's you met her personally? Yeah, no, yeah. I, you know, uh, we met prior to the starting sure. of the film. Mm -hmm. I met with Gary Hart and his family, mm -hmm. and uh, I met the campaign people, uh, and I've shown them all the film uh, since we finished. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stedek speaking with filmmaker Jason Reitman, whose new film is called The Front Runner. The other interesting thing about it is is that quite a few women around Gary Hart have quite an important role. I mean, Lee Hart, the wife, Irene Kelly, who is the works for the campaign, and then her great meeting with Donna Rice when yeah. she had this conversation. So do you see women as being more central to it, even though, to the story? even well, you, though Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can talk about the Gary Hart story and not talk about gender politics and the politics of being a woman. Uh, you know, I'm very lucky in that I've been working with the same producer since Up in the Air named Helen Estabrook. And she has challenged me to really think about uh, gender dynamics when it comes to our films. I think that's why the conversations between George Clooney and Anna Kendrick and George Clooney and Vera Farmiga and Up in the Air are so interesting. It's this kind of healthy debate that she and I get into as we approach each film. Now, what she said about the Gary Hart story is that we can't forget 
the unusual burden that rests on the shoulders of women in the midst of a scandal that is so different from the burden that is placed upon men that puts women like the character of Irene Kelly or Anne DeVroy at the Washington Post in the unique position of having to speak for their entire gender. When you're casting, you cast Hugh Jackman in the role of Gary Hart. How did you come up with that idea? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, look, I've been wanting to work with Hugh Jackman uh, as long as I can remember. He's just one of the great movie stars we have, and he's just a brilliant actor and one of the most hardworking actors, whether he's learning to sing for Les Mis or dance for P.T. Barnum or Claw for Wolverine. Mm -hmm. He's a guy uh, who prepares harder than anybody, and in this movie... He had to prepare for something he'd never done before, which is to play an enigma. You know, we're used to him as a guy whose heart kind of beats out of his chest. But in this movie, he plays this closed box. He just opens the lid a little, and we desperately want to understand Gary Hart. I mean, to this day, people, I mean, that's one of the questions people ask. Like, what was he thinking? And inherent to that question is kind of a desire to understand this guy's mind and and why he was so open to certain things and closed to others. And Hugh pulls that off kind of brilliantly. Well, and so one of the things that makes this film so effective is because you as an audience member are put into the position of trying to understand Gary Hart and yeah. what is going through his yeah. head. And certainly the setting is a part of this. I mm-hmm. mean, kind of setting it in the uh, late 1980s, which was also a moment in time. Yeah. And, and look, this film required more technique than I've ever had to bring to another movie. Uh, We decided very early on, it's a film that's set in 87, but we wanted to film it as though it was a film shot in the mid-70s. And we were big fans, my co-writers and I, of the technique and tone and style with which they approach political films in the 70s, which really put the job to the audience to figure out what they feel and, you know, what they think about the subject matter. So we tried to shoot it in a way with technique that was only available in the 70s. Which meant 35 millimeter, which meant... More than 35 millimeter. I mean, it's 35 millimeter, which was wonderful to be back on film, the first time since Up in the Air. But also these kind of long, sprawling shots in which you were introduced to characters. So many characters you couldn't tell at first... Who is important? Who am I supposed to track? So many simultaneous conversations. Our sound mixer, Steve Morrow, mic'd 12, 15 actors at a time. And as you watch the movie, he is kind of gently bringing up and down the conversations, but keeping them all alive. So as an audience member, you're forced to make a decision, cinematically and philosophically, Mm -hmm. about, okay, what is innocuous information and what is actually important? Well, and it brings you into the uncertainty of the moment, right? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, nobody was sure how this was going to come out. Nobody quite knew what the best role is. And obviously, there was all this protection and closing in of Mm -hmm. Gary Hart. But at the same time, as it began to unravel, people had to be quick on their feet and make decisions, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. And you didn't quite know, and they didn't quite know where this was headed. I mean, that's exactly right. And this story happens so fast. It's a thriller. It happens less than a week. A guy goes from being the next president to leaving politics forever. And we all have a certain responsibility in that. He has responsibility, but also the campaign people, also the journalists, also the voters. And this movie kind of puts it back into the hands and the heads of the audience and asks them, all right, given 30 years now of perspective, uh, what would you do? So he really comes off to me, uh, Gary Hart, Hugh Jackman, as kind of a Greek tragic figure. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, somebody who makes the moment of hubris of that one mistake, right. which then kind of gradually unravels to bring him into a situation that he loses control. Right. And I suppose the difference from each audience member is going to be, where does the tragedy lie? 
Now, some will see it as a tragedy that we never received him as a president because, look, I mean, here's a guy who in the mid-'80s was saying our addiction to oil is going to take us into the Middle East where we're going to encounter Islamic terrorism and we won't know how to fight it because we have a military that only knows how to bomb people. So, you know, you get Gary Hart instead of George Bush, and there's an argument that we never go into Kuwait. There's no, you know, Iraq war. We never go into Afghanistan. I mean, there is a different trajectory for this country on so many things. Now, another person may argue that the tragedy is that this man had hubris and that for however prescient he was in seeing the future of this country, he literally could not see what was happening right in front of his eyes, that the country was saying, we need to know you as a person, that this is a change, this is important to us, and he wouldn't answer that. It seems to me, though, that with your actors, a lot of your actors have comedy experience and that in some ways putting actors with comic experience into serious situations in a way gives you some kind of a sense of clarity. (laughs) Well, I think there's a kind of certain athleticism to comedians that works fantastic in a drama. You know, they are sharp. They kind of bounce with it. If we talk about improv, there's a whole history of improvisation within comedy. Their ability to um, work in the environment that we were trying to create, this messy, live environment mm-hmm. uh, that echoes the nature of a political campaign where so many conversations are happening mm-hmm. at once. What do you want this film to do? Besides be <laughs> successful. <laughs> I want it to create conversation. Okay. I want it to serve as a prism through which we can have the conversation that we're trying to have about 2018. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to talk about politics right now. You know, you, you bring up politics and you get your head chopped off. You can't even, like, step into Twitter. You have to tiptoe mm-hmm. into Twitter. Uh, so having a story that has some perspective, having a story that in many ways seems tame now, offers this the opportunity to have conversations about the tricky things, about gender politics, about our relationship with the press and our private lives. Um, I don't want to tell people what to think, though. That's not my job. My job as a filmmaker is to hand the baton to the audience, and they need to run over the finish line. Because it's not in the present, but at the same time, it is the present. (laughs) It's perfectly (laughs) said. It echoes all the questions we have today as we look at our leaders and we really try to figure out what flaws we are willing to put up with. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic. I've been speaking with filmmaker Jason Reitman, whose new film about Gary Hart is called The Front Runner. The Front Runner opens in Chicago at the AMC River East today and then more widely on November 21st. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend, and we will have some music from South Africa. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Nari Safavi is here. He is our global concierge for the weekend, and it's great to see you, Nari. I've first time I've ever been called concierge for anything. Yeah. Was it kind of fun? Was it fun? <laughs> Absolutely. It was very much fun. It was great. Uh, uh, good day, Jerome. It's great to be here. And those vocal, uh, vocalisms were by Uzge Uzman, who is the vocalist of uh, the Canadian-Turkish uh, ensemble called the Minor Empire. Very interesting sort of a play on words within the title of that. You know, Turkey being Anatolia, being Asia Minor also at one point. And these guys are Canadian Turks. Yeah, they're who, from Toronto, and uh, they've got um, they've been a big hit in uh, Canada. Their their album Uprooted was released la- late last year, about this time, and uh, it was a big hit. Yeah, and it's been uh, some of the people who are doing scouting for us. They've discovered these guys over in Toronto, and uh, and Uzge Uzman, Uzge uh, Uzman, I should say, uh, is a uh, is a very you know has a very ethereal kind of a voice, and he gets layered over the instrumentation of the of the native Canadians uh, from Saskatchewan in that area, uh, and it sounds very very heavenly, kind of a dreamy kind of a uh, atmosphere ambiance they create with this. And Minor Empire is going to be at the Old Town School of Folk Music on Wednesday, and that is a free event. People can go the the day before Thanksgiving and get in a really, really terrific. That's one of trippy, the gems of Chicago concerts. life, Chicago cultural life. The Wednesday night world music events that are free at the Old Town School of Folk Music, thanks to the efforts of people like Matteo Mulcahy over there. Check out Minor Empire next Wednesday and go every Wednesday to the Old Town School of Folk Music and see their fine world music stuff. And now we move on to our second feature with um, more music. And why don't we hear some music straight up from the Soweto Gospel Choir? The Soweto Gospel Choir is at the Chicago Symphony Center tonight at 8 p.m. And uh, Nari Safavi, we've got a couple members here with us. Absolutely. They're performing the repertory that they call Songs of the Free. And uh, it's going to be about marking the centennial of the birth of Nelson Mandela. And uh, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about that? I will say their names. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Shimmy Gine is the choir master, choreographer, founding member of the Soweto Gospel Choir. Great to have you. Thank Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. And uh, Sia M. Kifa is a member of the Soweto Gospel Choir. Great to meet you. Thank you, sir. Nice for having us. Um, Tell us a a little about the music you're performing here, the Freedom uh, Ensemble. Oh, the the Freedom uh, concert that we're performing here and the album, it's all about celebrating Nelson Mandela's 100th centenary. Yeah, and then uh, and also like uh, just to, just to take people back with the journey of when South Africa was was oppressed and where South Africa is today. 
And so we, we, we're just going to take people through a journey where, where, where we start with songs that songs, songs, songs of the struggle that, that we were saying during the struggle in 1976 and, and even like now where South Africa is which is the song of the free when we get to our freedom and the freedom that we're enjoying today yeah you were one of the founders of the Soweto Gospel uh, uh, Choir well, yes. tell us about the the start of this why did this organization start it actually started uh, downtown in, in, in Johannesburg in 2002 and it, it's after when when, when, when when the promoters came Mr. Andrew Kay and, and Mr. David Mulovic who is late uh, when when they met and they went to the market theater. Market theater is a place where you get all the artists, that good artists that come to to from South Africa that comes comes and 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 do their performance at the market theater. So they saw a show, and they were moved about what they saw, and they were like, "Oh man, this country has so much talent. How about we we we, we get voices? We open up a choir that we go all over the world and actually showcase what's happening." With, with, with the music in South Africa and with what we just seen now. And then uh, auditions were held and then people came in numbers and uh, I'm one of those because I started with the choir in 2002 mm-hmm. and I came to auditions and I was in a long queue and I had to uh, go in the auditions and sing and dance. But the reasoning behind the, 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 the birth of Soweto Gospel Choir was, was just to celebrate the heritage of South Africa, to celebrate um, um, our, our great history that we have, our different cultures and faiths that we have in our country. You must remember we've got 11 official languages. And in our show, we sing in six of those. Ah. Yeah. And and now also we, but they had to take, because there's music that people don't know that comes from South Africa, mm. especially our gospel music, mm. you know, especially our traditional music that comes, that's come from our roots that we grew up doing. So, so the gospel choir was, was based actually, uh, created for that so that it, people can, can see what's happening and, and hear that music that comes from the roots of South Africa that, that is purely South African. Yeah. yeah, And Soweto is more known for political activism. I mean, you hear about the Soweto uprisings yes. and all that, but there has always been a cultural dimension to all of that, I guess. So, yep. And that's where, you know, gospel re- uh, music, music came from. Was it really gospel or was it really something else that was the, all the people of South Africa, different traditions kind of blending things well, it, 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 it is a fusion of all right. the, 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 the cultural songs and right. gospel. Remember part of uh, us were also influenced by American uh, gospel. Right. So we stole that a bit and fused it with with our music in South Africa. So you guys do a Leonard Cohen song every once in yeah. a while. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. We actually close the, so, the show with that and, and it's a big song. Yeah, it's just, we we make it very big, and when when we when we sing it, people just tear up, people just stand up and start worshiping. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and you're performing at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. So uh, yes, are, are you sure people are going to stand up and start tearing up at the Symphony Center? It seems <laughs> yes, like they it's will. a little. <laughs> yes, they will. You know what? Um, yes, they have they, confidence. You know what? Uh, what I will say to you is that yes, they will, and and why I say that is because of what we do. We we we, we do it out of love and passion. And we we know wh- why why we here and 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 what we stand for, mm-hmm. and um, that the show that we bring here in Chicago it's a show that is very personal to us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a show that that's got a, a lot of history and rich history because you must understand that some of the our family members died through that struggle, mm-hmm. just to make sure that today we are here and be talking in, right. in the radio station and being right. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, it's it's a very moving uh, yeah. uh, show for us for 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 us. And not only for us, it's going to be moving for the for the audience, audience to see well. what the choir actually went through. Because so, all the songs, when you sing it, they bring back memories, yeah. you know. And the activity that you'll be seeing on stage yeah. reflects everything that happened in South yeah. Africa. And we we proudly say 
we are they are going to cry <laughs> they are going to be there's going to be joyful noise and they're going to stand up and they're going to be dancing with us because of it's 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 a true and a genuine show right. that comes up that comes from South Africa yeah. and we're in the third decade of post apartheid South yeah. Africa mm-hmm. of yeah. what we call the new South Africa yep. and uh are you seeing a change in the artists, the generations going through from people who actually had to live through the struggle or people who are dealing with it as some sort of a memory, a more abstraction? Well, yeah, there is, change. there is a change that is taking place. But at the very same time, uh, since we are still young, democracy is still young in South Africa, we're 10 years. So we're, yeah. st- we're still trying to figure out things. We still are still learning. But there is a change that is taking place at home. Yeah. Yeah. Is there... Um are there new members who want to join the group? How do you get new members, and how does that work? Um, <laughs> I, I know, uh, Sia, you must have been not an original member, judging by your youth. Yes. Uh, well, well um, the good thing is we've worked with, in a different production yeah. uh, with Shimi. So he's the one who told me about the auditions. So, uh, yeah, we, 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 it's, it's, it's not an easy audition, I must say. Because uh, remember that Soweto is still having an experience, in, an American international experience. So when they come, right. that's what they expect as well from yeah, us I when see. they audition you. So I see. And 90% of your performances are outside of South Africa. Yes, they yes. are outside of yes. South You're much more of a global yes, we are. group yes. than you yes, are. Yes, we are. Yes. Is that fatiguing? I imagine you're, you're <laughs> yes, touring a lot. How many, how many gigs do you do? Oh, like we do like 65. 65. Sometimes we do like we do a lot, and and like even now we we started in on the third of, of October, we are here until the nineteenth of December, so it's an everyday thing with just day offs and everything. And you must also remember that, um, we've we, we've also got a, a task to to you know to 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 take to the people that all like we we Grammy Award winners. So every time when we get on that stage, people expect the best. Yeah. So and I think tonight that's what they're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not only going to cry they're also yeah. going to laugh yeah they're going to laugh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah and it's enjoy. a journey it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful journey. what's the funniest thing about singing what is that <laughs> how do you make people laugh <laughs> the funniest thing about singing is when you stand up and you don't know actually the language that he's singing on and he's just going out and he's dancing and he's how do you handle does everybody know the six languages that you sing in do, do some oh, people yeah. just uh, figure Even more, it out there's, there's people who speak about eight yeah. yeah, in the choir, it's like I, I speak eight, yeah, eight languages, and she has how many? Speak, speak six. six, yeah. Six. And with our audience, because of they don't understand what we're saying, yeah. but because you know, music is the food for the soul. Yeah. So they be looking at me like I get what you say, and it's also our choreography speaks to the audience because mm-hmm. we don't just sing and stand. We do a lot of movements on stage, and we've got dancers. You know, and we've got percussion players. They they play jambe. So that that, that collaboration on its own, it's 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 out of this world. So the languages are like English, Afrikaans, Zulu, and what else? Kosatswana. Kosatswana, Bedi. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, yeah. but Africans, we don't do it here. You don't do on Africans. this show, no, 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 no. We don't do okay. Africans. Uh, yeah. You guys have collaborated with so many artists over the years. Yes. You two, Aretha Franklin, Stevie yes. Wonder, yes. Robert Plant, Celine Dion. I mean, do you have a favorite? Is there some uh, somebody who is Really fun to work with for you. I think it doesn't think that, have to be any of the people I yeah. met. But yeah, yeah. I think all of them. It's it's fun to have to to to. to it was fun working with them, especially when we worked with Miss Aretha Franklin, the late Miss Aretha Franklin, because when she came in and she saw us, she had the choir from the door coming in, and she was like, "Wow, I hear that." 
And then she wanted to come close to us. She came to us and she, she, she gave us all hugs. And like she was, this is fresh. I've never had said something like this before. Mm-hmm. And she asked us to sing again what we were singing. And then she said to and then she introduced us to her song. And she was, she was like, I just want them to sing something first before I come on stage. And we sang it. And as we were singing, she was coming and everybody was up in there too. And like up and just like clapping and applause and all that. Mm-hmm. So she was fun to be with. And Stevie Wonder was, was, was amazing too because he was, he also did exactly what Miss Aretha Franklin did because he was like, I like what you're doing. Now, now for my intro, I'm not going to use the band. I'm going to use the <laughs> choir to introduce me when I come in. We had to, like, right there, yeah. come up with something. And then we came up with, like, we did a song like, yo, 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 Stevie Wonder. Yo, the choir just came in. Everybody was like, wow. You know. <laughs> well, that gets to be fun. Yeah, yeah it gets to be fun. fun. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Can you do something with Jerome McDonald and take us out? Or <laughs> <laughs> Jerome McDonald is not a good singing name. So I can barely get it out myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope a lot of people check you guys out tonight. Yes. The Soweto Gospel Choir is in Chicago, 8 o'clock at yes. Symphony Center. And there's still tickets. People can check out, and you'll be brought to tears. It has been guaranteed. Yep. You will laugh. Yes. You will have a good time. Yeah. You have joy. So that's uh, terrific, and it's been great meeting you. Uh, Shimmy Gianna is yes. the choir master, choreographer, and founding member of the Sweto Gospel Choir. And Sia M. Kifa is uh, one of the members of the Sweto Gospel Choir. Nari Safavi is the co-founder of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange. He is our regular concierge here on Weekend Passport, <laughs> uh, where we learn how to have an international good time on the weekends. Uh, great to see you, Nari. And concierge have, Global. That's have, what <laughs> have a fine weekend. Okay, thank on you very much. Next you, week on Worldview, we're going to have some fun, and we're going to talk about food for our little three-day week between Thanksgiving, Monday and Thanksgiving. So we're going to talk about Korean food Monday on the program. Our pal Bruce Cummings will chat who we normally talk to about politics. We'll talk a little food and we'll uh, go places and experience food next week on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. What's up there?